0: the tip of the tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Poppy Tooker here in the studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Poppy Tooker is a great great food educator, and if you've ever been in one of your classes, you know that she's a great storyteller, and in addition to that, she is the host and creator of Louisiana Eats, a public radio show, and a podcast. So welcome. Oh,
1: thank you. And it's so wonderful that we are both now right here in our home studio
0: at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. I know. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) It's actually my first podcast in the studio, so I'm excited. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here with you. So please let everybody know how you came to this career. Oh goodness, I came to this career because I'm a native New Orleanian.
1: Sometimes when people ask me to qualify my work, I just feel like I should be able to look at them and say, "Well, I'm a native New Orleanian because if you are one of us, then you're likely to be passionate about food and interested about everything that you eat." And so back when I was a child, I had a love and a fascination for food. I was watching Julia Child on PBS and reading Miriam Giedro's in the Times-Picayune, and I just loved it. And Now, the truth was that my mother was not a cook at all. We had a housekeeper, and when the housekeeper got too old, the food got really inedible. (laughs) And so... I said to myself, well, I can do that. And so I by the time I was 12, I was cooking just about everything that we ate at home. By the time I was in high school, I had my own catering business. And then I thought I was going to pursue a life in theater. And so I was enrolled in CalArts, the California Institute of the Arts in Los Angeles. And my work-study job was running the dorm cafe, Mom's Cafe. And it was while I was in California that I realized I got the same charge from food as I got from theater. And I knew instinctively, blessedly at that very young age, that somehow food was going to be a safer and happier life for me. And it's incredible the way everything came full circle because now I'm on TV and I have my own radio show.
0: So there you go. So you're still... In the public eye. (laughs) I'm still performing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, I've always been really disappointed with the Division of the Arts in Louisiana because they don't consider food one of the arts. And, and they specifically don't. And to me, it's like, well, if you're performing in the kitchen, showing people all about their history and culture, surely that is much of an art as painting a picture or singing or something like that. Well, I think some great strides
1: have been made to correct that by Emeril Lagasse adding the culinary arts to the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. No, that's true. And so that, I believe, is a first step in correcting that here in Louisiana.
0: Yes, and I think our history of being in the French vein, let's say, should also underscore the culinary arts as an art form because certainly that should be in everybody's DNA if, if you're drinking the water here. Absolutely, just like Creole food, that's in your DNA too. So tell us a little bit about your training and what you did in order to actually get to the point where you were really reflecting Louisiana culture and New Orleans culture in particular, and not just cooking in general.
1: Well, I was very fortunate to have been best, best buddies with Lee Barnes, who had a cooking school here back in the 70s. And I became a teaching assistant at Lee's cooking school. And it was just the most incredible experience because it was really at the height of that cooking school gourmet shop craze that washed over the country for about a decade. And that's where I learned how to teach cooking by watching and helping from the very, very best. And that led me into a career actually in high-end house how, that led me into a career with high-end housewares and tabletop. So I had this really great gig for lots and lots of years where I would travel the Gulf South selling Calphalon cookware and Baccarat crystal in the daytime and at night I would teach cooking in the gourmet shops that I was selling to in the daytime and it was really, really great fun. And that all just continued along with me being a sales rep and a cooking teacher on the side. And finally, right around 2005, I began to find my voice in writing. And that was really when I started devoting more of my time to my writing career. And it all began with an article I wrote for Louisiana Cooking Magazine that turned into a column. And then the next thing you know, I had a cookbook and published the Crescent City Farmer's Market Cookbook in 2007. And that's how it's all been since then. And 10 years ago, just through a Blessed coincidence, a mutual dear friend of ours who's no longer with us, Diana Pinkley, approached me one day at the market. She and I served on the market board together. And she said to me, Poppy, would you like to do a radio show? And I said, I think I could do that. And she said, good, because I pitched it today. (laughs) And that was how we became the first locally produced show on WWNO when they made the switchover from all classical music 10 years ago.
0: Oh, wow. Well, I also think that you became very well known as an advocate post-Hurricane Katrina in 2005 when you were really supporting so many of the farmers and dairies and places like that, places where people were just wiped out. And the whole food system was really in turmoil. And you were an advocate for the system, not just the individuals. And I think that that was a really remarkable thing that you did. Well, I just happened to be
1: there. I just happened to be back in New Orleans, the moment that we were allowed back in. And a lot of that work all started with the Crescent City Farmers Market. And uh, Richard McCarthy, who was the founder and executive director at the time, had to relocate to Houston. And so I can remember hearing Richard's voice on the phone saying, oh, Poppy, our food system is so broken. And it really was. And I had been at that time for probably 6 or 7 years very involved with slow food an mm-hmm. international food movement that I had started a chapter of here in New Orleans in 1998 and the slow food world came to our aid in a really big way and it was just because I was the one with the boots on the ground. My slow food friends contacted me and said, how can we help? And the next thing I knew, they were having gumbo parties and red beans and rice dinners and events all over the country at farmer's markets and in slow food chapter members' homes to raise money to help us get our food system producing again. And Through a grant that was awarded, it was the arc of taste that a lot of this centered around. The work expanded from the farmers into the restaurants, and there were just so many in need. And that's how, through the Terra Madre Relief Fund, which we created through Slow Food USA and International. With Carlo Petrini's blessing, not only did we get the Brandhurst shrimper family back to the market by the time we reopened in the Tuesday before Thanksgiving uh, in 2005, Kay Brandhurst was there at the market with a truck full of shrimp, but we also worked out various ways that helped the brocadas reopen. We gave the first grant money to help with the first big fundraiser to get Dookie Chase back open again. And so it started to stretch over a broad spectrum that reached beyond just the food producers right into restaurant kitchens.
0: And, of course, that kind of set up a network so that when the oil spill happened shortly (laughs) thereafter, it was able to continue to function, I think. Let me tell you what. No, actually. It was the oil spill.
1: The BP oil spill is what caused my formal separation from Slow Food USA. Really? Yeah. At that time, I assumed. (laughs) There's that word that means you're kind of stupid. I assumed that they would have my back. And it was really an administrative thing. It just was was the person who happened to be president of Slow Food USA at the time, didn't handle things very well, and ended up doing more damage for our brand than help. There was a blog site where they asked me to write a blog. And so, of course, I did. I just always have done what people asked me to do. And they posted this blog without any supervision. And it was a true experience for me backing up What I always contended was that blog rhymes with flog. And Mm -hmm. from all over the country, people who were emboldened by their anonymity came out of the woodwork to attack me and say things like, what do you mean eat Gulf seafood? I just as soon put petroleum oil in my baby's bottle. And there was absolutely no supervision. There was no opportunity for debate. And so... I just said, thank you very much, and pulled the plug. And that's when Slow Food New Orleans ceased to exist.
0: That's really unfortunate because that's not a very responsible way to run a blog.
1: It was very bad. It was yeah, a very, very, very bad. Yeah, it it's so
0: amusing, like it. though,
1: how life turns out, because then, before you know it, who becomes president of Slow Food? But Richard, Richard McCarthy. McCarthy. So, you know, you just wait long enough, and life does turn around. Right. But anyway.
0: Right. I remember there was a meeting at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum when it was at the Riverwalk of chefs that had been brought in and the director of the FDA. And we brought in people who were doing the testing for the safety of the food and showed people what contaminated food was like versus not contaminated food. And it was so obvious that you would know that food was contaminated when they saw the two compared to each other. That I think it really changed the minds of a lot of actual chefs about buying it. But that didn't mean that individuals were mollified. It only meant that maybe chefs would be less afraid to well, to try it.
1: Thank God that has all receded in our rearview mirrors. Yes, ears.
0: that's true. That is absolutely true. Yeah, there are a lot of those things that just keep popping up. But we have bigger fish to fry now, don't we, Liz? That's right. (laughs) We definitely do. We definitely do. So tell me now that Louisiana Eats is not only in Louisiana. Tell me about it spreading around.
1: Well, Louisiana Eats has a very broad reach. We are heard on all of the NPR affiliates throughout the state. That's Red River Radio, KRVS, WRKF, and of course here at home at WWNO. But what has been fascinating for me is we've been a podcast since before people started listening to podcasts or they became a thing because every show that we've ever done was automatically posted on the web and was permanently there and available for anybody to webcast from their computer or podcast. And so consequently, for a long time now, I have had an incredible international following for Louisiana Eats because people are listening all over the world. We've had contests and uh, it was amazing to me. We would run contests and people would win in San Francisco, in Brooklyn, and. The, the broad scope of where they were listening in the U.S. was amazing. And there was one gentleman who wrote me, I know for a fact that once a week in Switzerland, this gentleman took a
0: walk with me in his ears. <laughs> and I was very honored to have that privilege. And so do you think that that, besides your sparkling personality, do you think that there's just an interest in the food of New Orleans and Louisiana?
1: Absolutely. My goodness, Liz. I I would guess that you and I could say one word, and that would illustrate it. Popeyes. My (laughs) God, do you have any idea how many Popeyes there are in South Korea? There's like 400 of them. So yes, our brand of Louisiana food is translating successfully and has a huge following across the world.
0: I I really think that that's really illustrated even by things like Louisiana Cooking Magazine, which is just treating Louisiana food as a thing, the way you might get La Cucina Italiana or something like that, where it's really not southern food, it's Louisiana food. And I think that's really exciting because I think the fact that we're It's not that we've never been recognized. I think people have come here to eat for a very long time. But I think that now people are looking at it as actually a reason to travel and because of so much more culinary travel that's happening. You've been listening to Tip of the Tongue on the Nitty Grits Podcast Network. We are recording at our studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. You can come by and see us whenever you want. And you can subscribe to our podcast anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams, and this is Nitty Grits.